people have absolutely no confidence in Baltimore City Police. They violated their constitutional rights to be secure within their person and their property. It's like the police don't have any respect for us, period. It's a lot of brothers and women, too, that's incarcerated for things they had nothing to do with. Not a panacea. Constitutional policing just means treat everyone equally. Welcome back to Truth and Reconciliation. Today, we will take a closer look at a concept that has informed the dialogue about crime in Baltimore since the death of Freddie Gray. That is, since his death, the upswing in violence is in part due to police officers, quote-unquote, taking a knee. It's an idea that was featured prominently in a recent New York Times article, which discussed the city's inability to tackle violence without equal violence from police. But perhaps it is not fully understood in context because the details of what that type of policing entails is not fully understood. A gap in information we will try to correct by literally reading from the statements of the officers themselves and hear exactly how this alleged reduction in crime was achieved and at what price. All that coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation. So basically, we were going to start today talking about a concept that uh, Sean and I have talked about and Taya a lot that both of us, all of us find kind of annoying that came to light in a New York Times article, this concept of cops taking a knee since Freddie Gray. Mm. Uh, The idea that cops just laid down and stopped doing all the magic they were doing in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know, Sean... That was a pretty prevalent theory. What, what, is, what do people mean when they say cops take the knee? I mean, I, I know it's a really weird sports metaphor, but how do you interpret it? Well, that they just, well, from their perspective, perhaps they were, pardon the pun, gun shy because of mm-hmm. what transpired with those six officers being indicted in the wake of the, uh, the death of Freddie Gray and the uprising. And so, you know, you, you hear these narratives, um, some of them generic, some of them more specific that, well, we don't we're afraid to do our job right. for fear of being reprimanded in a way that could cost us our careers, um, we, jail time, whatever, uh, you know, yeah. everything that they, that they were saying. So that that was the concept that I heard constantly about them taking a knee. And. I've heard it from several sources within command staff chiefs mm-hmm. who said, yes, that actually happened. Now, Taya, after this article is released by... <coughs> Sorry. Okay. Now, Taya, after this article is released by the New York Times, the FOP tweeted something out, which was very interesting and sort of in concert with this concept that somehow police weren't violent enough. What did they tweet out? Absolutely. And let me just unpack for one second the idea of taking a knee, because when football star Colin Kaepernick takes a knee at a football (laughs) game, it's in order to stand up for civil rights of fellow African-Americans and those who have been taken advantage of by our criminal justice system. When an officer decides to take a knee, he continues to get paid and is basically essentially saying, I refuse to provide the services that I am being paid to, to provide. And essentially, those services are to protect the citizens. So taking a knee, conflating it in that way, I find Mm -hmm. very problematic. However, the FOP, after uh, reading the article of the tragedy of Baltimore, decided to tweet out that not only was the city hashtag in crisis, but that 
it's not fair for the FOP, for the FOP and police officers to try to do their job when the other team is playing tackle and they're just playing touch football. Mm-hmm. To to make it sound like their hands are tied, that without being able to truly unleash the violence at their disposal, mm-hmm. they are unable to do their jobs. Yeah. And Sean, you know, we we're going to read statements of probable cause from a period in 2009 of under a month. It's not everything that happened, but it's it's a bunch of them. And, you know, what is it? How does it affect the community when you're sitting on a stoop, minding your own business? I mean, the one thing that, that goes through all these is that the person is not committing a crime, let's say. Mm-hmm. They just happen to be someplace. Maybe they're drinking a beer. Maybe they're urinating, but maybe they're just sitting there. What Do you think the psychological damage that's been inflicted upon the city because of this kind of policing is even understood in any level or any depth? It's actually, I think it's immeasurable in a lot of ways mm-hmm. because you're living in a constant state of anxiety. Right, right. That's a constant I mean. state of fear, a constant state of you never know what's going to jump off. And because we've been conditioned to live in, in, in those conditions, you take on the persona of I'm tough enough to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Nothing bothers me. Mm-hmm. And that's soul killing in and of itself, mm-hmm. having that, having to have that ability yes. to not feel anything, Absolutely. to numb yourself, right? Um, it's 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 a perpetual state, and 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 it's and I liken it to um, another issue that we've talked about, and that I think should we should you know should have more traction in in our in our conversations um, generally. I mean, in the city itself, as it, like it's like blight. It's like right. if you live next door to an abandoned house mm-hmm. and that's what you come home to that every single day and you leave and you leave out your door and you see that blight every single day after a while you get used to it but then sure. you you're not you you're not, right it, you internalize it. you're yes. not conscious of the damage that it's done to you I agree um that type of depression that type Absolutely. of like literally blight over you every single day yeah. and that type of that type of fear and anxiety that law enforcement um Injected into our communities for decades, uh, it's 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 a it's, similar sort of thing. It's sinister, and you know, Tay, when you 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 were going to be reading from a bunch of these so people can actually hear them. Absolutely. There was a lot of times when there was anger expressed by the people yes. confronted by police. What do you what do you make of that? Because it really was, you know, you would see a police officer would say, "Well, I just walked up to the guy and he said, go fuck yourself' or something.' What what do you think? Right. Well, what. I, I, I suppose the, the problem is is how an officer wouldn't see that, for example, uh, someone sitting at a bus stop waiting for a bus, when approached, when asked, why are you sitting at the bus stop, mm-hmm. when asked, where are you headed, when asked, do you live in this neighborhood, how an officer wouldn't see how this would be intrusive to someone who ostensibly is not committing any crime, who's minding their own business, perhaps at the end of a hard day. Why would an officer not understand how that might provoke some anger and annoyance? And in many cases, in these reports, as you'll hear, when someone expresses their annoyance or uses profanity, that's when the arrest starts. Yeah. Right then. Yeah. Well, Sean, so looking back, if if someone, if you read this article and they said, well, 2010, things were just great and violence went down, you know, how would you, would you counter that narrative or do you think that narrative, you know, because we always hear it, this was a great time when, you know, uh, I mean, how would you, <laughs> I mean, right. That's, there hasn't been a great time in Baltimore City for black people since 1960, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I mean, 63? Uh, well, 68. 68. The, I, mean, I, I mean, you hear that all the time. Yes. That after 68, everything changed mm-hmm. in the city, especially mm-hmm. in, our, in our communities. Yeah. Um, and so to, to try to find a great time uh, not since I was a real little boy. 
yeah. um, has there been? I mean, I still, you know, mourn the 70s, but um, even those weren't great times for, yeah. for the black community in Baltimore. Right. All right. Well, That's why it's so important. This show is called Truth and Reconciliation. We have to have the truth of what policing was like in Baltimore so that we don't make the same mistakes again. Because when well-meaning people write stories that suggest that we were doing something wonderful with policing here in 2009, yeah. we, they, we have to acknowledge the truth of it. Because if we repeat these mistakes again, we're going to cause even more pain and more damage to a city that I don't think can handle anymore. Well, well put, both of you. Um, so coming up next, we are going to actually not make a comment or do anything, but simply read these statements so that you can see the reality of what this meant, what this wonderful policing meant for the city. And you're just going to hear it in the words of the officers themselves. So coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation will be some real truth. One thing I want to point out before we get started is that these were documents I obtained from a police officer who was concerned about the zero-tolerance policy. Uh, and they run from just a couple weeks in October and September of 2009, this supposed halcyon era when policing was doing the aggressive work that needed to be done to stop crime. But as you can see, most of the arrests were for petty stuff. And more importantly, every single person that I looked on the hundreds of documents I reviewed were African-American. So let's get started. On the 20th of September, 2009, at approximately 1240 hours, I observed a black female later identified as Ms. J sitting on the vacant steps at 609 Monroe Street. This property is clearly posted no trespassing. Due to the high volume of CDS calls in the area, Miss J was not able to give a reason to why she was in the area. Miss J was arrested for trespassing. On September 30th, 2009, at 1830 hours, while doing routine bike patrol in the 400 block of Marion Street, I observed Mr. X urinating in the alleyway. Mr. X was placed under arrest and transported to CBDF for processing. On 9-30-2009, at approximately 18.50 hours, the defendant was observed in front of the liquor store, located in the 100 block of North Utah Street, drinking from a 24-ounce can of Bud Ice beer. Same was arrested, transported to CBIF, and charged accordingly. On September 30, 2009, at 18.04 hours, CityWatch camera number 41 was utilized to observe the 500 block of West Saratoga Street. CityWatch camera advised me that there was a male at the location possibly with an open container of alcohol. I responded to the 500 West Saratoga Street and observed defendant Mr. M in possession of an open container of alcohol. Defendant M was arrested and transported to Central Booking. On 9.30.09, at approximately 20.30 hours, this officer was working plain clothes in an unmarked vehicle in the 2700 block of Fairmont due to recent shootings in the area. When I observed two black males, later identified as X and Y, sitting on the porch of vacant dwelling, the dwelling had a posted no trespassing sign. The sign is very visible. At this time, both Mr. X and Y were placed under arrest for trespassing in a posted no trespassing area. On October 1st, 2009, at approximately 1725 hours, the defendant was observed in the 300 block of Utah Street with an open container of Old English beer. Mr. E was arrested, transported to CBIF, and charged accordingly. On 10.01.09, at approximately 9.30 hours, I was on routine patrol in the 2400 block of East Biddle Street. 
when I observed a black male sitting on the steps of 2411 East Biddle Street. When I exited my police car, I approached the male and asked him if he lives in this location. He stated to me that he lives on Preston, not on Biddle. I then asked him for his ID. He stated to me that I don't have any ID on me. The same was then placed under arrest for trespassing on public property owned by Passport Realty Company. On October 3rd, 2009, detectives from the Northern District Gang Unit were in plain clothes. At approximately 12 a.m., detectives were conducting an investigation in the 3400 block of Greenmont Avenue. At that time, a male, later identified as Mr. T, was standing approximately 10 feet away from the detective. Mr. T reached into his pocket and retrieved a pack of Newport cigarettes. Mr. T retrieved a cigarette and proceeded to crumble up the pack and throw it on the sidewalk at the feet of the detective. Mr. T was arrested and charged accordingly. While working routine patrol in the 100 block of North Cary Street, I observed two unknown black males later identified as Mr. A and B sitting in the block. I exited my marked patrol vehicle and asked the suspects what they were doing in the area, and they said nothing, just sitting. Both suspects were arrested and transported to CBIF for processing. On October 2nd, 2009, this officer, along with other members of the SWD Operation Unit, were in the 2500 block of West Baltimore Street when I observed a group of males standing on the corner. This area is a violent, high-crime, drug-trafficking area. This officer advised the males to leave the area. All the males walked away, except the defendant, later identified as Mr. B. Same continued to stand on the corner. At that time, this officer placed Same under arrest. Same was transported to central booking. All events occurred in the city of Baltimore, state of Maryland. On October 8, 2009, at approximately 1,300 hours, Officer D and I were attempting to conduct a CDS investigation from a covert location in the 1700 block of Montpelier Street. While in our location, we observed a black male, known to the officers as Mr. W, approach our location and discover our presence in the area. We then heard Mr. W state, Yo, police, to a group of individuals that were standing in the area. These individuals, who are known by these officers to be involved in illegal narcotic sales, then immediately left the location. At this time, we exited our location and placed Mr. W under arrest. On the 3rd of September 2009, I was in routine patrol of an area of Perkin Projects due to recent shootings and drug problems in the area. At approximately 0.35 hours, the defendant, who was later identified as Mr. V, was approached in the 300 block of South Baloo Court for a field interview. During the field interview, it was learned that Mr. V does not reside inside Perkins Projects. The defendant was placed under arrest. On October 7, 2009, at approximately 20.20 hours, officers were on routine patrol in the 2200 block of Druid Hill Avenue, heading southbound, operating a marked patrol vehicle while in plainclothes capacity. At this time, we observed a black male, later identified as Mr. S, sitting on a set of vacant steps. Officers stopped their vehicle in order to speak with Mr. S. Mr. S was asked if he lived at the above location. He stated no. Mr. S was then informed that he was trespassing on private property. Mr. S was then placed under arrest and transported to central booking for processing. On the 20th September 2009, at approximately 12.40 hours, I identified a black female, later identified as Miss J, sitting on the vacant steps of 609 Monroe Street. This property is clearly posted no trespassing. Miss Jones was not able to give a reason why she was in the area. Miss Jones was arrested for trespassing. On 10-01-2009, at approximately 16-19 hours, the defendant was observed on a City Watch camera number 26 urinating in the 200 block of Clay Street. 
Mr. W. was arrested, transported to CBIF, and charged accordingly. On October 3rd, 2009, at approximately 9.30 hours while patrolling the 1900 block of East Lavinale Street, this officer observed a black male later identified as Mr. B. with an open container of Colt 45 malt liquor. Mr. B. was arrested and transported to CBIF or Central Booking for processing. Defendant M. was observed by officers to unlawfully drink and consume from an open container of a one-pint-sized can of steel reserve beer while in public view of Baltimore City, State of Maryland. Defendant M. was placed under arrest as an abatement to this incident and transported to CBIF accordingly. Statement of Probable Cause. On September 5, 2009, approximately 12:10 hours, this officer responded to the 3300 block of Eastern Avenue, even side rear, for a reported black male armed with gun. This officer, along with other officers, observed X standing over another black male later identified as Y that was laying face down on the ground with suspected blood leaking from the body and a white male later identified as Z holding a Canon camcorder filming events. Officers ordered all individuals to the ground and began to frisk for other potential weapons. During frisk, four handguns were recovered. Investigation reveals that the individuals were filming a movie. All handguns recovered were inoperable starter pistols. Mr. A was advised that he purchased all materials and it was his project that the individuals were filming. While filming, individuals caused a crowd to gather and made citizens fear for their safety. The defendant was placed under arrest, transported to CBIF, and same charge accordingly. All events occurred in the city of Baltimore, state of Maryland. Thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation. Truth and Reconciliation is produced by Telegram, Stephen Janice, Sean Yost, and Sienna Greaves for A Spectrum Production. It's also engineered by Sienna Greaves. If you like the music at the beginning and end of the podcast, you can find it on Spotify under the artist Mr. Muse. Also, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or leave us a review if you enjoy the show. I'm Stephen Janice. And I'm Taya Graham. Thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation. Reconciliation.